All right, so we will finish tonight John chapter 19. That gives us two more chapters to go, and we should cover those in the next couple of weeks. Um, so we're in John 19, 23 through the end of the chapter. Now, if you've ever been there when someone has died, if you've ever watched someone take their final breath, that's, that's a traumatic thing. And on the news, they always say, or in obituaries, they always say they died peacefully surrounded by family, and it makes it sound very serene, but in my experience, it often isn't. It's often uh, something that you want to get out of your mind as quick as possible. It's a hard thing to see. And the irony about all that is, when it comes to the most important person in our lives, and that's Jesus, we want to dwell on the last moments of his life. We think about it constantly. And it's not because there's anything morbid about us. I mean, the, the scriptures give us the details of his last day in intricate detail. That's, that's the longest narrative section of all four Gospels is the account of his death. And I think we dwell on those facts, first of all, and most importantly, because of what his death accomplished for us. That's where our salvation was achieved. But secondly, because of the way he died and the, the way he behaved in the, in the moments leading up to his death, tells us a lot about who he was. You can't really say that about most people. Most of us, in, in our last moments, we're not really ourselves. We're, we may not even be conscious. Uh, we may not be lucid. We may just kind of babble. So you can't really judge someone by the, the way they act in their final moments in this world. But Jesus was fully in control. And that's one of the things that John goes overboard far more than the other three Gospels to show us is that Jesus was in control to the very end. That doesn't mean he didn't suffer. He absolutely did. And John does not dismiss or downplay his suffering. But Jesus was in control. And you'll see that in this account. You'll see that stressed. You'll also see uh, four different times John's going to refer to uh, moments that fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Now, out of the four Gospels, John's the one that talks about the Old Testament the least. Anybody have a guess which one of the four Gospels talks about the Old Testament the most? You got a one in three chance. <laughs> Anybody want to guess? Matthew. Matthew's exactly right. Matthew is the, the Gospel that, that refers to the Old Testament the most, and, and people assume that's because he was writing more to a Jewish audience. It's just an assumption. Uh, but John doesn't talk about the Old Testament much, but here, four times in this short passage we're going to look at, which tells us John thought these events were especially important. And in the end, after, I, after we go through these verses, I'm going to talk to you about why those fulfillments are so important. So, uh, verse 23 begins, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. So this tells us there were four soldiers who were tasked with uh, crucifying Jesus and the two other criminals, the two criminals who were crucified on his right and his left. There was also a centurion. John does not mention him. Uh, they divided up his clothes, and, and scholars will tell you that was pretty easy because a typical Israelite man wore 
five pieces of clothing, typically. They would, they would wear shoes, they would wear some kind of a hat, scarf, turban, head covering. Uh, they would wear an outer garment, like a coat, and then there was a belt. Now, not a belt like you and I wear, this was more of a sash or girdle, and it had pockets. So it was a pretty valuable piece of clothing. But that undershirt, that tunic that, that stretched from the neck down to your, your, leg, your lower legs, John says that was woven in one piece. He doesn't say this, but you wonder, did Mary do that herself? Uh, someone did. This, you didn't go to Kmart, or, or well, I'm dating myself, aren't I? There's no Kmarts anymore. Uh, you didn't go to JCPenney or Kohl's uh, to buy your clothes. Someone made them for you. So this was a valuable piece of clothing, and so they gambled for it, which, by the way, is the first fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in our story. It's a quote from Psalm, 1, Psalm 22, verse 18. And Psalm 22:18 is the one that begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not the last time that John will refer to that psalm, but it just tells you how important Psalm 22 was in terms of uh, looking forward to the death of the Messiah. Verse 25 says, uh, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. All right, so several things here. First of all, it mentions four women. And the first, we know who Mary is. We know who Mary Magdalene is. Mary, the wife of Clopas, we don't know anything about her, although some people don't take this to the bank. This is just speculation. They think perhaps Clopas is another name for Cleopas, and we know him a few chapter, from chapter 21, uh, or from, from Luke, that is, uh, the two people walking to Emmaus who saw Jesus, and they think, well, maybe it was Cleopas and his wife Mary. That's just speculation, two disciples. But the fourth woman there was Mary's sister, his mother's sister. Now, here's where it's interesting to combine all four Gospels and do a little detective work. So uh, when, when, Ma Ma bleh, when Matthew is telling the same story, he says the mother of Zebedee's sons was one of the four women. You know who the Zebedee's sons are, right? James and John. Mark, Mark 1540, says Salome was there. So when you put all three together, you can assume, although you can't take it to the bank, obviously uh, there may have been, they may have been naming different women, there may have been more than four, that, that's possible, but a lot of scholars look at that and say, hey, it's highly likely that Mary's sister was the mother of John and James, and her name was Salome. And if that's the case, John and James were first cousins of Jesus. Interesting, isn't it? Again, we don't know this because it's never said outright, but it would explain why when Jesus is looking down on Mary, why he looks at John and says, you take care of her because John's blood, he is related. Why wouldn't Jesus say, well, my brothers can take care of you? Well, the brothers at this point, as far as we know, were not believers in Jesus and Mary was. So this, there could have been conflict there. Now, they later became believers, or at least James and Jude did. So, uh, but at this point, Jesus looks at John and says that. I also need to point out, this is the first of three sayings from the cross that John lists. There are seven total. 
You've heard this before from other pastors, but I want to remind you how difficult it was to speak when you were being crucified simply because of the physics of it, just because of how the human body works. Uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not asking you to go home and suspend yourself from your arms, but, but I would say that you can probably imagine, you've probably hung from a, a pull-up bar or something, and you know uh, what, how strenuous that is. So think about, instead of your arms holding this way, this way, and, and how it takes a lot of effort just to draw in a, a, a good, strong breath. So your words had to be important. Most people didn't speak at all from the cross. Jesus spoke seven times, and one of those was to take care of his mom. And it shows that tenderness there. He's the oldest. It's his job to make sure she's taken care of. He's fulfilling his job, his role in the family. It kind of gets you right here, doesn't it, to think about that. And, and, and while we're on it, just think about how hard that day was for Mary. There, there's probably some people in this room who've lost a child, and that, that's probably the worst experience I can imagine. Hasn't happened to me yet. hope it never does. But to lose a child has to be worse than anything else. To watch a child die slowly like this, we can't even comprehend. Now, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Interestingly, Mark tells us that at the beginning of the day, when Jesus is carrying his cross, and after he surrendered it to uh, Simon of Cyrene, which, by the way, John doesn't mention. We assume Jesus couldn't fulfill, couldn't finish carrying the cross because he'd lost so much blood from his flogging. But at that point, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh or gall, depending on which translation of the Bible you read, which all scholars will tell you that was a sedative. It wasn't the Romans offering that. The Romans were not interested in dulling anybody's pain, but there were, there were Jewish women running along who were doing their best to be compassionate to these, to these men. There's, you may be a criminal, but you're a fellow Jew, you're a fellow human, we're going to do what we can for you. Jesus refused it. He didn't say why, but we assume, I assume, it was because he wanted to keep his wits to the very last. He wanted to make sure he was able to say what needed to be said and didn't lapse into kind of a catatonic state, even though that would have been so much more comfortable. But here, after, after he said what he needs to say, and the, the end is so very near, they offer him uh, what, is, what is called sour wine. This is something different. Now, scholars will tell you that the, the lower classes, including the soldiers, the legionnaires, this is what they drank. They didn't get the good stuff. They got what is comparable to vinegar today. And they offered him that on a branch of a tree. And he took it. His thirst was real. By the way, this is the only time in the whole crucifixion narrative when Jesus ever complains about something physical. Which is noteworthy. He's beaten, he's flogged, he's nailed to a cross. He never cries out and says, this hurts too much, you have to stop. But here... Toward the end, he says, I'm thirsty. Now, that was real, and people will tell you, when you've lost blood, when you've been, you've been suspended in midair for hours, 
of course you're going to be very dehydrated and that dehydration some of you've experienced some level of dehydration you know it's not just like regular thirst it was real and yet it also as john points out fulfilled prophecy well, what is that talking about well here's our second fulfillments psalm 69:21 they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink and also in Psalm 22, which we mentioned earlier, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So the, the thirst of the suffering Messiah was foretold. And Jesus is making sure everybody knows everything's going the way that God said it would in his word. In verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know, if, if there was just one verse out of John other than John 3.16 that, that gets to me, it's this one. That, that gets me on an emotional level. If I had to choose one other than John 3.16, it would be this one. First of all, some of the other Gospels don't say what Jesus said. They just say, with a loud cry, he breathed his last. Well, this was the loud cry. It is finished. You've probably heard this, but in Greek, it's one word, tetelestai. And it's a word that means it's completed, nothing left to be done. That it's the kind of note that you would, in the ancient world, that you would write across a bill of sale when the bill had been paid. If you bought, uh, if you bought land, or if you bought food for your animals, or if you bought clothing, and he wrote out a bill and said, okay, it's this many shekels, you paid those shekels, he would write to Telestai across the top. And Jesus was saying, it is done, it is finished. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But I also need to say, the fact that it was a loud cry is noteworthy. And the way I picture it in my head, and I'm 99% I'm sure I'm right about this, I bet everybody there was shocked. People who loved Jesus, people who hated Jesus, and everybody in between, that they'd never seen anybody die like that. Because when you came to the end of your life hanging on a cross, you didn't have anything left. Certainly not enough strength to yell out. And Jesus wasn't crying out in pain. He wasn't crying out in anguish or, or self-pity. He was crying out in victory. Amen. I mean, it just took, it had to take people's breath away. How could he do this? What does he mean? It is finished. And then I want to point out also the way John words this, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Literally, the Greek reads, he laid his head to rest and gave up his spirit, almost as if to, to say he, he was just going to sleep. Now, John's not saying it was peaceful. He's just, he wants us to know this was his decision. Jesus died in six hours, not because uh, his body just didn't have anything left, but because he had suffered enough. That's why he said it is finished. Now, how he knew it was finished, only he knows, and he can tell us when we get to heaven, but he knew at that point, I have done everything necessary. I have finished my mission. So what, is that? what does that mean? It means? It means my life here is done. I get to go be with the Father. But more than that, it means I've left nothing undone. Nothing undone. And that's good news for him because his suffering was over. But it's even better news for us. You know, someone pointed out to me, the last words of Buddha were, Strive without ceasing. Jesus' last words were, it is finished. There's a world of difference between those two 
last words, isn't there? And the sad thing is there's a whole lot of Christians that live more like they're following the last words of Buddha than the last words of Jesus. They, feel, they, they look like they're always on a hamster wheel, constantly trying to win the approval of God or win the approval of other humans. I mean, honestly, if we can be honest, it's a lot of that too. We want to impress the people around us. We want them to see us as holy and righteous and worthy. Jesus says, it's finished. I've done. I've done it all. Anything we do for God after that, we do not so that he will love us. We do because he does love us. And, and by the way, anybody who says, well, if, it, then it's finished. if it's finished, then I don't need to do anything. Well, then you've never been in love before. You've never loved anybody. Whether it's a, a, a husband or wife, whether it's a child, whether it's a parent, whether it's a very good friend, if you've loved somebody, you know you don't have to be forced to do things for that person. You want to do things for that person. You take joy in doing things for that person. So that's why the, the Christian life should be a source of joy because there's no more compulsion. There's no more sense that, oh, if I don't do this, I might miss. I might miss heaven. I might miss his love. I might be cast out into the outer darkness. It is finished. It means that once you've received what he did for you, you're his forever. And I, I'm pretty sure I don't have to tell y'all that, but it could be there's one or two of you that are still running that hamster wheel. I, one of the sweetest Christian ladies I've ever known, and she was my, my grandmother's best friend, um, and then I got to be her pastor for, for a couple of years when I was wet behind the ears preacher boy, and she came to me four or five times saying, I just, how do, how do you know you're saved? How, how, and I was like, Mary, if anybody's saved, you are. Now, I don't, that didn't do her any good because I was 26 years old. She wanted more proof than that. What I should have said to her is, do you think that Jesus's blood is enough to save anybody? And she would have said, yep, absolutely. Do you, do you, have you accepted? Do you believe that he died for you? Sure. That's all you need to know. Going deeper down that rabbit hole. Baptist preachers, evangelical preachers with good intentions, 99% of the time, urging people to come forward to pray the prayer of salvation, to follow Christ in baptism, which I endorse, will continue to do. But part of the downside of that is it makes people think, you know, I don't really remember the moment I accepted Jesus. Maybe I'm not really saved. I don't remember what I was thinking then. I don't know if I really meant it then. Maybe I'm not really saved. When all that really matters is, do you believe Jesus died for you? Do you believe that's enough? That's all you need to know. When we stand before the Lord in judgment, with all of my heart, I will tell you, God's not going to say, tell me the day and the time. Tell me the words you prayed. Tell me what was going on in your mind. Did you understand the doctrine of justification by faith? Were you reading out of the right translation of the Bible? Did the minister say the right things when he put his hand? Did he put his right hand or his left hand on you? Did he, when he baptized you, did he say Romans 6, 3 through 4 or not? None of that's going to happen. Because a God who would send his son to die for us is not going to keep anybody out over a technicality. I didn't plan to say any of that. It just, 
<laughs> we, we, we make it so hard when Jesus did everything. I mean, we're like people who you get, you get done with dinner and the, the waitress says, good news, uh, you know, that fellow that just walked out of here, he paid for your meal. Oh, no, 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 I'm not, I, I insist on paying for myself. Well, why would you pay twice when someone has been so good as to bless you in that way? All right, one more thing on that and then I'll move on. You know what some of the last words in the Bible are? Revelation 21.6. Some of the last words of Jesus in the Bible are, it is done. I find that interesting. So it is finished at the cross. And then the new Jerusalem comes down. And the new earth is founded. And we're resurrected. And Jesus says, it's done. There's nothing more. It ain't going to get any better than this. This is the top. This is why I died. All right, verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now this is a really gruesome detail, and John's the only one who, that mentions it, that the brutality, that's just one taste of the brutality of the cross, is that the Jews wanted those bodies down that day. Ordinarily, the Romans left them up as long as they could. Left them to rot, essentially, because the longer that body stayed on the cross, the more of a deterrent it was to anybody who might want to break the law, but this was a high holy day. And for all their flaws, the Romans tried to respect the religious uh, uh, wishes of the people they governed. And so the Jews said, hey, you know, this is preparation day for Passover, can't have dead bodies laying around. So in order to hasten their death, this is, this is you know, I, I just said something semi-kind about the Romans. The way they choose to shorten the lives of these men, think about how brutal that is. You take a, a, a a hammer, a sledgehammer, and, and break their shins. There's got to be a better way, right? You could suffocate them. But anyway, the reason they did it this way is because of, again, that physiology I talked about earlier, when you can't, you can no longer push up because your legs are broken, then you quickly suffocate. So why does the soldier pierce Jesus' side? I think, although it doesn't say, I think their job was to make sure that these men died. I mean, you, essentially, they had one job, these four soldiers. Their job was to make sure these, these three men died. And so to just look at Jesus and say, well, I don't see his chest moving, so it doesn't look like he's breathing, that wasn't enough. They had to make sure. And so piercing him with that spear was just insurance. The blood and water coming out. No one really today knows what that means. There's all kinds of speculation, uh, but... At the bare minimum, it was John's way of saying, I know that he was dead. 
There were probably people back then, I know there are people today who speculate, well, the reason the tomb was empty later is he never really died, he revived in the tomb, and then got out on his own, which is ridiculous on its face. Even if Jesus somehow survived the crucifixion, that he would somehow be able to roll away the stone by himself and fight off those guards who were there, that's ridiculous. But John is short-circuiting that right here by saying, listen, not only was he dead, but they, they pierced him through with a spear. Um, but here's your second, here's your third and fourth fulfillments of prophecy. Psalm 34:20 says, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. That's also a reference to the Passover lamb. Every year when the Jews celebrated Passover, the rules were you took a spotless lamb and you had to kill it in a certain way, you had to make sure you didn't break any of its bones. I wonder if down through the centuries, how many times Jewish families wondered, why did God make that a rule? And now we see. It was all leading up to the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And then the fourth is from Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah 12.10 is one of those that, you know, when you're reading the Old Testament, and you're reading it all the way through, and you get to the prophets, and you go, oh, golly, these guys are ranting and raving about stuff I don't understand. I'm just kind of getting through this. And then you hit Zechariah 12.10, and your, your ears go, bing, because, Wow. It's just right there. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So it was about three o'clock when Jesus died, according to the other gospels. Um, so they had a couple of hours. It's somewhere in that time, between three o'clock and when the sun went down, Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pontius Pilate. Pilate, according to one of the other gospels, is surprised that Jesus is already dead, but he gives permission. The reason it had to be done that day was because the Jews didn't practice embalming. They weren't Egyptians. Uh, they just wrapped the body and, and used some spices to keep the smell down. Uh, so it had to happen that day, but it had to happen before sundown because at sundown the Sabbath would begin and no work was allowed. Think about this. If Joseph hadn't stepped up and offered his family tomb, Jesus would have been thrown into a common grave. That's what the Romans did with people who were crucified. He would have been buried with those other two men, possibly others. Joseph steps forward. What Joseph does here, you and I can't even comprehend the bravery. Now, you and I could, could uh, cast stones at him for not stepping up earlier. It says he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. He had a lot to lose. He was a member of the council. He was a wealthy man. All of that, I'm sure, changed the moment he stepped in front of Pilate and said, I will take his body. He outed himself as a believer in Jesus at that moment, as did 
Nicodemus. Nicodemus, of course, we've seen him two other times in John. This is the first time we've seen Joseph. We saw him in chapter 3 when he went to Jesus by night. By night, because he didn't want anybody to see him. And he just had questions. And that's where Jesus talks about you have to be born again. And then in chapter 7, we see him evolving and starting to believe because the the Sanhedrin are starting to uh, talk about uh, killing Jesus. And Nicodemus said, well, shouldn't we give him a chance? Shouldn't we examine what he says first? And they said, what are you, one of his followers? And now, out in broad daylight, he brings 75 pounds worth of myrrh and aloes. Remember, myrrh, of course, was one of the three gifts of the wise men. Aloes, uh, probably not aloe vera, some other kind of substance, but 75 pounds. I mean, the strongest of us wouldn't want to carry that around. Here's Nicodemus carrying enough spices to bury a king. That's literally the kind of show you would bring for royalty, which by now Nicodemus has realized Jesus was. These two men, these two men's lives changed that day forever. Could never go back. You and I can't know, and we won't know until we get to heaven, the true cost of what they did. But that's the cost of discipleship. That's the cost of truly following Jesus. And so many would follow after them in the days ahead. Uh, By the way, it says he was bound in linen cloths. So some of you are familiar with the Shroud of Turin, right? I hate to tell you this, but the Shroud of Turin is not legitimate. And we know this from carbon dating. Carbon dating has shown that it was made sometime in the Middle Ages. But we, we didn't need that because the Word of God tells us there wasn't a sheet laid over Jesus. They, were bound, they bound him in linen cloths. In fact, one of the other Gospels says that he had a face cloth and then the rest of his body was covered with something else. So this idea that there was this long sheet that laid over him and somehow his, the vapors of his body made this image... It would be fun if that were true. It would be a, a neat uh, archive but, or a neat uh, relic, but it's not. Jesus was bound, mummy style. I mean, like, like Lazarus was. When Lazarus came out of the tomb, he, Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Jesus was bound. The, the, the wrappings went over and over again over him as they, I'm sure, uh, doctored them with the myrrh and the aloes uh, and then wrapped his body. And that meant that... Nicodemus and, and Joseph, these two wealthy men, they probably didn't do a whole lot of manual labor anymore. They had to handle this man's body. They had to do that, that work, that intimate work of cleaning and preparing and wrapping because they loved him. They're signifying, this is my Savior. The burial practices of the Jews were to leave a body in a tomb. You, you would cut out a, a, a hole in the rock in the limestone, and you would bury the body there, and you would leave it for months, and then you would come back, roll away the stone. By then, the flesh was gone, and it was just bones. You would take the bones, you would put them in a box. It's called an ossuary, a little box, and you would carve the name of that person on there and stick them back in that tomb. This is why John tells us no one had been buried in that tomb. There was nothing in there yet. No ossuaries from others And there's no ossuary anywhere today that says Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, because his flesh did not rot. This is the final fulfilled prophecy, by the way. And John doesn't say it, but we know it. Isaiah 53, verse 9, and they made his grave with a rich man in his death. Way back in Isaiah, Isaiah is telling us 
the story of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, why is all this prophecy so important? Why, why do we care that all this was foretold? First of all, it shows us why the Old Testament still matters. There are Christians who will ignore the Old Testament, and I'll admit it's harder to read. When Christians come to me, new believers, or people who've been in church their whole lives and have never actually read the Bible, and they say, I want to read the Bible, I always tell them, don't start with Genesis. I know that's the logical place, but the Bible's not an ordinary book. Start with Matthew, read the New Testament, Get used to the way the Bible reads. Get used to the rhythms of ancient language. If you start with Genesis, by the time you get to Numbers, much less Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you'll just you'll throw in the towel. The Old Testament's hard for a number of reasons. And so a lot of Christians want to just ignore it, but you can't. The Old Testament is still the Word of God. Harder, harder, uh, harder reading, harder ground to be plowed, and yet... It bears incredible fruit. And this is a reminder that Jesus is in the whole Bible. He's got to look a little harder in some books, but he's there. And I, I could go off on that, but I won't. Um, number two, it shows us why Scripture itself is important. Think about how many times Jesus quoted Scripture. Think about, for instance, just his temptations in the wilderness, the Judean wilderness, when the devil comes to him. And three times the devil offers temptations, and every time Jesus answers with a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Man does not live on bread alone. You should worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus used the word of God. He used it for guidance. You might say, but wasn't he God himself? Yes, he was. And yet Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus emptied himself. So in some sense, he was like us. He lost some of his uh, all-knowing nature. And so he relied on the word of God to tell him what to do. He relied on the word of God to tell him right from wrong. Scripture, listen, we worship Jesus. We don't worship the Bible. That is true. I've heard people make that point, and I agree with them. But if you say, I believe in Jesus, I don't need the Bible, you don't understand. There's no, there's no way to follow Jesus without knowing, studying, and obeying the Scriptures. You can't have Christ without His Word. You can't say, well, I love the story of the, of the cross and the resurrection, but I don't like all these teachings that restrict me and restrict humanity and, and put us into these narrow little, no, Jesus said, the way is narrow. It's not going to be easy. You have to take him at his word. And then finally, number three, these prophecies are important because they show the truth of God's promises in the future. There are still prophecies in the book that we haven't reached the full fulfillment of yet. I mean, there are things you and I believe in, like to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Does anybody else find that promise really, really comforting? And uh, God's promise that I will remember your sins no more. Is that a good one? That, that God forgets all our sins, just intentionally puts them out of his mind. He doesn't, he doesn't remind us of them, you know, like you do your spouse when, when you're having a fight. And hey, remember that time? God doesn't do that. Or, or the one where Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. 
that we're going to turn around and there he is. Or in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. That's a precious promise. If, if you're, if, put it this way, if you'd like a new body, I don't know anybody who wouldn't, that's a precious promise because it's coming. And the reason why we can believe those promises is because we see how his word has come true in the past. How, how he didn't let any of his word fall to the ground. And, and even, in, even in death, he's saying, the word says I need to do this, so I will. The word, needs, the word says I need to say this, so I will. I want everyone to know that God's word, my Father's word, is true. So, no, we don't worship the Bible. The Bible is, in the end, a book, not our Savior. And yet, you can't worship our Savior without his word. And glory be his name. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that it tells us. I thank you, Lord, for what you suffered on our behalf. And I pray, Lord, that we would never forget it, that we would glorify you in all that we do. Make us humble. Keep us near the cross. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.